It's the Ambiguously Blind Podcast with your host, a guy that's great up hearing, but terrible at listening, John Grimes. Hey, 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 greetings. Welcome back to the Ambiguously Blind Studio. Thanks for tuning in, subscribing, and supporting our podcast project. Our little podcast continues to grow, and that is all due to you, the good listener. So thank you so much for sharing episodes with others and connecting with us on social media. And you can really get a lot closer glimpse into the podcast by checking out the photos and the extra stories and things that we post there. And since you like what's going on, I hope that you can take a few minutes out of your busy life to leave a five-star review on the app or the platform for which you listen to the podcast. That'll really help keep things moving and grooving around here. Our guest for this episode is no stranger to the five-star reviews. Kevin Broussard is a wild man in the world of sports. He's a three-time world champion in the sports of shot put and discus, and also a national champion in judo. Kevin joins us to talk about some of those sports endeavors, as well as his work with the United States Association of Blind Athletes, and share his story, which includes a tremendously unique eye condition and his mission to enable the disabled. Hey, Kevin. Thanks a bunch for joining the Ambiguously Blind podcast. Yeah, John, thanks for having me on. I really uh, enjoy the episodes you've done and just kind of the different guests you've had on for this show and uh, glad glad to be a part of the community. Hey, I appreciate that. Always good to talk to a fan, you know, that's <laughs> that's always encouraging. Uh, somebody's listening to, to this out there. Um, I've talked to a few athletes and you are one of those and that's pretty exciting. I want to talk to you about all kinds of sports endeavors but uh, you and I have something in common. We both have a visual impairment. I want to talk a little bit about yours. Most of the people know about mine by now. Um, and I've heard you kind of describe it as something like star guards. So what is your, uh, your visual condition and, and how, how has that affected you? Well, the short answer is I do not have a verifiable uh, vision loss disease. I recently, a couple of years ago, had genetic testing done at the University of Utah, and they tested for 264 known retinal diseases, and I don't have any of those 264. So what wow. that really means is, yeah, it's- That's a pretty exclusive I'm, company there. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty pretty unique person in all <laughs> aspects of my life now. So what that means is, you know, I, I referred to it as a, an in-betweener. You know, it's, you know, of all those, there's 264 known retinal diseases, at least last time I checked. And uh, there's a lot of mutations off of those. And so that's, that's where I fall is in the mutation side. And um, most similar between star guards and cone rod dystrophy. And so I usually tell people, you know, instead of giving this long spiel, when they ask uh, what my vision loss is, I typically say it's uh, similar to star guards or star guards. Uh, gives people that frame of reference. And the way it, you know, affects my vision is I have a lot of central vision loss. I also have uh, peripheral loss. Um, and I've had this since I was born. Some of my earliest memories growing up was uh, not being able to see properly. It, when I was five years old in kindergarten, I was sitting two feet away from the chalkboard and I couldn't, I couldn't read what the teacher was writing. And that was one of the first kind of aha moments where I realized something was, was really wrong. And, um, you know, on, uh, my, when you look at my visual acuity, 
And I do wear corrective lenses. With corrective lenses, my right eye is about 20 over 600 and my left eye is 20 over 800. I didn't have any correction till I think I was about 12 or 13. And so I was walking around for the first 12 or 13 years of my life with much worse acuity, much worse vision, but I learned to, to get around. I learned to navigate. I learned to just kind of, you know, be independent when I was younger with much worse vision. And so, you know, when I got my, uh, my prescription lenses, when I was a teenager and my vision improved immensely, you know, that was really a big boost for me, but you know, I'm still, <laughs> I'm still very visually impaired or blind uh, with my corrective lenses in, but, you know, again, it's, it's all relative. And I think just from, on a daily basis, the biggest barrier, just like a lot of blind people is I can't drive and, uh, you know, running into transportation barriers, you know, I can't recognize people just by, just by their face. And um, of course the uh, assistive technology that, a lot of blind and visually impaired people use in their lives. Those are things that I, I utilize quite a bit. So, you know, in terms of, you know, what, what's, is my vision going to uh, regress further? Is it going to stay the same? That's kind of a, a looming question and because, because I have something that's similar to Stargardt's, but also similar to Conrad dystrophy. Those two regress at a very different rate. Stargardt's uh, generally speaking, and I am not a scientist or an optometrist or anything. I'm just kind of giving my, my interpretation, um, for Stargardt's, you know, you, you get to a certain point of legal blindness and you kind of stay in that, in that range for the remainder of your life, your life. Maybe you have some age related deterioration, whereas Conrad dystrophy can regress much further. And, you know, I, I'm not really one to dwell on the what ifs too much. There's really not much I can do to control, you know, where my vision does and does not go besides trying to protect my eyes with, with sunglasses and whatnot. And um, I've always been able to adjust my whole life and whatever comes my way with my vision loss, I'll be able to roll with the punches and, uh, and deal with it. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff there to unpack. You just went through, <laughs> I think maybe start the push here to make it, maybe call it the Broussard. You know, <laughs> you know, they usually name it after the doctor, but I think if we go, no, to patient, no, we yeah, can't, that would be, yeah. uh, no, let's go with the Broussard. It, nice yeah. it. it yeah. does kind of sounds fancy even. So yeah, definitely. You mentioned technology briefly and I was maybe surprised to learn that you're not an iPhone guy. I'm not, you know, I, um, I, I use Android and the reason, I don't know, I, when I first got a smartphone, I. I got an Android. I don't know if the iPhone was too pricey for me, so I cheaped out. But one of the things I really like about the Android is um, I find for my kind of vision loss, the, the text messaging is much more customizable. I do a lot of high contrast. And so like my, my text messaging is very high contrast, large font. I do the, the white font on black. Um, I think iPhone is kind of caught up to that. Um, and they've made some similar changes, but you know, it, it seems like Android's made some, some pretty good strides on that front with accessibility and, um, yeah, gets the job done for me. Um, that's okay. I'm but, not going to give you too hard of a time. Yeah. That's, that's, that's okay. Uh, <laughs> don't, you know, don't start this debate. I, yeah, you know, we're not, no, that's, 
we're not here to talk about that anyway. So, yeah. but but I speaking of technology though, I think do you think life would have been simpler for you at an earlier age with with technology or do you think things would have been better uh had you had these types of devices or the all the accessibility that's almost built into most computers and and devices these days or I don't know, was it tougher then than it than it, you think it would be now if you're the same age as a kid? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm 31. And so when I was growing up was kind of the, um, the, the advent of, you know, more modern day visual accessibility technology. And so, you know, I remember when I was younger, I had a, a CCTV, which oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Was, I had one of those, you know, it was like the size of a desk. It was kind of ridiculous, yes. but nowadays they're kind of, you know, the size of an iPad, but you know, I, look, you know, it's, that's a great question. Cause when I was, I was talking to somebody the other day about how, when I was younger, I was, I was really embarrassed and kind of ashamed of my vision loss. And so I tried to find ways to hide it or try to, you know, find ways to adapt without any technology because I didn't want to call, I didn't want to call any more attention to myself because of my visual impairment. And so like when I was in high school and middle school, high school and college, I used a monocular to see the board, but I held that off as long as I could. Cause when I was in elementary and grade school, I was, you know, I was, I was really afraid and embarrassed to use a monocular in class because it would just kind of bring attention to the thing that I was ashamed of. And so what I did is I just listened. I was always just, I would just listen to what the teacher was saying. And then I, I got to the point, you know, when I'm in sixth grade math class and there's a, a formula that's 10 lines long, you can't really listen to stuff like that. And um, at least, you know, if you're, if you have some kind of vision and you're able to, to view it and, um, just kind of sucked it up, but definitely the computers, man. I spent a lot of time in my life early on with my nose to the computer screen. And, um, that was, that was always kind of difficult, um, especially trying out new computers to, to know if I was going to be able to, to pull it off or not. And so things like zoom text, or, um, I'm a big MacBook user. I'm on one right now and being able to use their zoom technology, Okay. Are, well then you yeah. are in the Mac, you're in the walled garden a little bit. So, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I, uh, I do enjoy some of their okay. products. Um, yeah. Well, I've, I've got my feet planted firmly on both sides of that. I'm, I'm, I'm running this through a Mac right now, but next to me over here is a, a PC and, um, I use zoom text also. So it's good to hear you say that it's, um, you know, I could spend hours talking about the goods and the pros and the cons of zoom text, but it really has been, a um, that, that, really became available, I think, maybe in the late 90s is kind of when that started moving, which was right about the time I was starting to need it anyway. Um, and I've used that for longer than I would care to admit, really. Um, but it's improved quite a bit over the years. And uh, somebody asked me, uh, kind, of, kind of the reason I asked you that question was a few weeks ago, somebody asked me the question. My my, my vision change happened in 1998. And the, the question was, what, what do you think would have been different if it happened in 1988 or it happened in 2008? Just like what, in particular about technology, like what, what would be different? And I think if it happened uh, 10 years earlier, I don't think it would have been, I don't think it would have been good. I mean, medically speaking, what we knew about my condition with meningitis, I, I may not have lived through it. 
Um, and then as far as all the just medical stuff about eyesight and then all the technology stuff, 10 years later, there's vaccines for meningitis. There's all this adaptive equipment. So I don't know. I guess I was just one of the lucky ones that kind of got right there in between of uh, the, the old and the new. But um, I rely on technology heavily. I mean, I, I'm sure you're, uh, you can relate to that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm on the computer nonstop for, for work and just, you know, you can't, <laughs> you can't be off the grid nowadays if you're trying to, you know, live a productive life and, and yeah, you know, just what you're talking about there, not only the technology has grown, but just the, the resources in the community, the online community, especially has grown. I'm in a, I'm in a, I don't have any children right now and I don't have any children that are blind, but like I'm part of a Facebook group of parents of blind kids and people are always asking questions and it's just, you know, it's nice for them to know that there's other people out there going through the same things because especially when you're blind, a lot of times if you're a blind child, you might be the only blind child in your district or in your yeah. whole area. And you can feel like a total outsider and uh, just having that online community where people can connect and go, Oh, you know, this person went through the same thing. Here's some, here's some things that help them out. And, you know, we'll get through this. There's a, there's a lot of support, um, you know, not only the technology, but just the people are willing to support kind of share how they work through it too. Yeah. And just like we're doing here with the podcast and with YouTube and all the, all the resources that are available. Um, yeah. Outside of the medical community and, and the uh, vision community, it's, um, it's, it's, it's a good time. And I think things are just going to keep getting better. And all the great podcasts, of course, you know, well, yeah, well, I, you know, <laughs> I, I don't want to, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so also you mentioned sunglasses, which is kind of a hot button issue for me because I wear sunglasses, uh, anytime I'm outside, uh, or if I'm inside and it's bright or something, which is not that often, but anytime I'm outside for sure. So sunglasses are like a big thing for me. Do you have, uh, do you wear, are, are you shaded in when you're outside? Yes, definitely. I have quite a bit of light sensitivity. Um, the, the problem I have with sunglasses, it, well, it's more of a problem with me is I always lose them. And okay. Yeah. So that's, that's exactly a problem for me. I, I lose them. I put, I put them somewhere right. Where'd they go? I, I, I got to leave yeah. right now. Um, I've got an appointment. I got to leave the cars waiting, you know, uh, where's my glass. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And it seems like, I mean, it seems like, uh, like clockwork every time I decide to plunk down by, you know, an expensive pair. Yes. I'm like, all right, man, you I know, take care of these puppies. Protect, yeah. You gotta protect the little vision you have when you buy these and then, you know, within a month they're, they're gone. And so, um, I, I have my go-to pair of sunglasses. I, I use Oakley's right now. I've kind of switched back and forth depending on, uh, you know, the lens or things that I'm, I'm looking at. And then I typically have, um, a few pair of, I just call them gas station sunglasses where you just, um, and those are my backups, you know, I'll keep a yeah. pair of my, uh, my backpack that I take to work. I'll have some at the office in case, um, you know, I forget them. And especially like in the, I live in Colorado in the wintertime, if I'm leaving for work and it's dark, I might just forget to, to bring them and, but it could be sunny later in the day. And it's, you know, I don't like to use those gas station ones as my main pair, but it's nice to have something if I, uh, if I end up forgetting my good ones. Yeah. You would think at least for me, as important as the, the glasses, the sunglasses are to me that I would be, take very good care of them. I would know where they are. I would put them in, you know, but I don't, I mean, life happened. I mean, I take pretty good care of them, but I mean, you'd think I would treat them like, 
you know, like, like I can't get a scratch on these things, but I throw them around and I lay them down. I get in a hurry and, and I need like a dozen pair and I like to buy nice ones and I can't, you know, we're, we're looking for a sponsor on the podcast. So if somebody wants to sponsor the, uh, sunglasses, we'll talk about them. I'm, I'm actually rocking, um, uh, two blind brothers. Are you familiar with, uh, Bradford and Brian Manning, the two blind brothers? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I've heard of them. Yeah. So I just, I'm wearing their glasses right now. I had, they were on the podcast a couple months ago and, and they, uh, yeah, they're called the Cavaliers. They're, they're pretty good. You should check them out. Yeah. I'll give them a, I'm sure I'll uh, need a new pair in about a month. Yeah. I'm about to lose my pair. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, something else that I wanted to ask you was, uh, what are some common misconceptions that uh, you get either as a visually impaired person or even more so as a visually impaired athlete? The biggest misconception that, uh, that I deal with, and I'm sure a lot of people that are blind or visually impaired deal with, is the, the general public's lack of understanding of the, the wide variety of vision loss that's out there. A lot of times people, when they hear that you're blind, they immediately think you're totally blind. They can't see a thing. So when, you know, for example, if, if, if you're blind and then you're looking at your phone and they're like, wait a minute, I thought you're, I thought you're blind. Or the one thing that I hear a lot, and I don't think it comes uh, from a, from a bad place, but it, it always rubs me the wrong way is people go, Oh, you're blind. You don't act blind. And, you know, yeah, that's I, a good I always one. try to bring a little humor to it. And I say, you know, what does that mean? Do you want me to like run into a wall or something? Like, what is, what does that mean? I don't act blind and, but it kind of gives you a little peek into how society views the capabilities or, or lack thereof of blind people. And so that's the, the biggest misconception is, you know, I, uh, you know, I'm very independent. I travel a lot for work, for sports, for, for personal, I'm, I'm doing a lot of things in my life. I'm a homeowner doing, doing all these things um, that, you know, quote unquote, normal people do. And, that uh, most people don't associate with, with blindness. And, uh, it's just those, those common stereotypes that we're running into. And, um, you know, I was, I was traveling the other day with my wife and we were at the Denver airport and we're about to, um, about to board. And the person at the gate walks up to my wife and she asked my wife, Hey, does he need help? I'm standing six inches away. And, you know, the person's asking my wife if I need help. And so, you know, I spoke up and said, Hey, look, you can ask me, I'm, I'm standing right here. I can hear, I can hear, I can verbalize. And, um, it's, you know, it's one of those things too, with, um, you know, I do use a cane pretty often when I travel, um, when I'm in crowded areas, I do, uh, in more familiar areas, I won't always use a cane, but, um, I, I have enough uh, vision to be able to see, you know, people's, you know, to see kind of the shape of people, you know, I'm kind of in this gray area where I'm, I'm blind and visually impaired, but I have a little bit of sight, but not enough to rely on. And um, so it's always interesting kind of seeing people's reaction when I'm walking with a cane down the street, you might see people, you know, you'll be, you'll be, you'll see, um, a mom and, uh, and her son walking down the street and the mom will grab her son and part, part the red sea. Like she's Moses to get out of the way of the blind guy. And, and then you see people in the airport who are uh, not paying attention and I almost run them over and I'm six, five, 300 pounds. So I'd probably win that battle. But, um, those are, those are some of the, the things I run into the most is, is just kind of the questioning of, of capabilities because of vision loss. And, 
I always look at those as opportunities to, um, to educate and to let people know kind of where I'm at. Um, I think it's easy to, to tee off and kind of get in their face about it or what have you, but I think that's a great chance to say, no, you know, I'm blind and I'm able to do this. And let me, let me tell you how, and, uh, kind of change the perception one person at a time. Yeah. And that's kind of what we're trying to do on the podcast here too, is kind of help, uh, change perceptions and, and, uh, because as I've described myself, uh, ambiguously blind, kind of what you were just describing there about, you know, somebody may not be able to tell that about you if you don't have the cane, the cane's kind of like the international symbol for, for vision loss. So that, that certainly makes it other easier for other people. Um, to know, but without the cane, uh, you might consider yourself, uh, at least to other people, uh, as ambiguously blind too. So, mm. okay, but let's talk about sports, uh, because I feel like sports is a pretty big factor in your life and probably came along at a good time in your life, uh, to, uh, kind of change, change a direction for you, uh, early on. Is that, is that what happened? Yeah. It's fair to say that sports changed the trajectory of my life. Um, when I was, Growing up, I, I dealt with a lot of bullying and teasing at school. I was one of the only kids at my school with a disability. And so what happens a lot of times with kids is they like to point out the thing that is quote unquote different. And I was the different kid. And uh, from a very young age, I was bullied and teased on a daily basis at school. And it really just, it really just shredded my confidence and, um, you know, when you're, when you're young, you're developing who you are as a person and your personality and your, your social skills and all these, all these things, you know, and you throw in a bunch of hormones in there too. And it's, it's just kind of a mess. And then when you have people telling you every day that you're worthless and you're subhuman and you deserve to be blind and all these, all these terrible things, you, uh, you really take it to heart. And, um, you know, I grew up with a really great supportive family, but just what I was going through at school every day and socially, it, it really just created this dark cloud over, over my childhood. And, um, I was, you know, by the time I was eight years old, I was having suicidal ideology. And, um, I even told my parents that one day at the dinner table after, a a really harsh day of, of bullying at school when I was in, you know, third or fourth grade. And I was, I was not going down a good path and I really needed a, um, a positive outlet to, to focus on so I can shift that mindset of, you know, not focusing on the things I couldn't do, but focusing on the things I could do. And, uh, that that's where sports really stepped in for me. And, I, when I was in high school, I, uh, I played football, I played offensive line, I played offensive tackle, left tackle. The, the running joke was uh, you put the blind guy on the blind side, which is the, the nickname for left tackle. Um, yeah, pretty much I could, hit, I, could, I could hit the guy, in, I could see the guy in front of me. So that was uh, about good enough. And then I uh, joined the track and field team when I was a freshman and uh, had never done track and field. But, and I really just did it because my, my friends from the football team were doing it and we thought it was a good off season training and got into the shop, put in discus from there. And, uh, it wasn't very good my first year, but by the time my sophomore year had wrapped up, I was second place in our conference in the, in the shot put. And, um, 
started competing internationally when I was in high school, when I was uh, 17, went to my first international event for, uh, for blind athletes out in Colorado Springs, where I, where I live now. And I, I grew up in Southern California. I'm not sure if I, if I mentioned that part. So yeah, I, I went to my first international event in 20, uh, 2007 when I was 17 years old. I took a silver medal, uh, lost by half an inch to a Russian guy in the shot put. Still bothers me to this day. But <laughs> half yeah. an inch, wow! I'll get over it one of these years. Um, <laughs> but the the nice the silver lining with that is um, it, that that loss, that close loss of just just losing out on gold, really motivated me in my my training moving forward because that was the thing that pushed me through when I was getting tired or didn't want to do that last throw in practice or that last rep in the weight room. I'd always be thinking about that going that extra mile. So I'd be on, on top of the podium, uh, the next time it came around and, uh, went to college at the university of Laverne, which is a small school in the Los Angeles area and, uh, competed all four years there on the, the track and field team. And, shot put in discus, uh, dabbled a little bit in the javelin, but I was not, I was not very good. So I I hung that one up. And, uh, in 2011, when I was a a junior in college, I went to my first world championships and, um, ended up taking a gold in the shot put and a gold in the discus. So that was a really incredible event for me and just a culmination of a lot of hard work and effort over the years. And, you know, one of the things that I was kind of going through my mind as I was standing on top of the the podium and I got the gold medal around my neck and got the American national anthem playing. It's, you know, it's an incredible moment. And uh, one of the right or wrong. And one of the things that's really fueled me in my life is proving people wrong. And I didn't want to live up to all those things that people said to me when I was younger, that I was worthless or I never amount to anything. I never, you know, all those, all those really negative sentiments. And so when I'm on the uh, standing on the podium, I'm thinking back to, you know, what they're saying and, in my mind was, you know what, they were all wrong. They were all dead wrong. Um, I was able to persevere with, you know, the help of, of my community, my family, my friends, with everyone that played a role in my journey. It was a very, a very vindicating moment. And, you know, something that that's ultimately what sports really brought me was confidence in my life, confidence in my abilities Um, it also really instilled in me, um, a great work ethic. So, and and that's something that's followed me to whatever I've been doing in life, whether it's sports or my, my job or whatever, whatever is in front of me, I'm always willing to roll my sleeves up and, and, um, and put in the work and, um, and then also goal setting too. So, you know, that's another thing that's, been a great takeaway from my sports career is um, being able to, to do that. And after my track and field career was over, I did judo for several years and competed for, um, for Team USA internationally. I uh, was a, a national champion in, in judo in the, in the heavyweight division and um, the number one ranked uh, heavyweight fighter in the U.S. for, for three years running. So it was, uh, I retired last year, decided to hang it up. My body did not have any more mileage on it, unfortunately. 
but um you know sports has just completely transformed my life um not only as an athlete getting to travel all over the world in the US to compete but now working in the sports world too um and it's just opened up so many opportunities for me and really something that I'm grateful for yeah i bet you had a big smile on your face on that podium um, as you were standing there taking all that in, that's gotta be a great feeling. It was, I had a big smile and I also had a gigantic beard at the time. I, w- I don't know if you're familiar, if you're a hockey fan or what, a lot of the hockey guys will grow out their beards yeah, during the, the playoffs. Playoff, yeah. Right. So I was, I was 21. I was doing that. And, uh, so I was, uh, I had a really good track season that year. And I was like, you know, I'm not cutting my beard until, until the <laughs> world championships over. So yeah, I had a, on the podium, the photos, I had a big smile and a big beard and, um, oh, maybe you couldn't even see the smile then maybe. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think if I trim my mustache a little bit more, maybe you could have yeah. seen that smile, but, uh, yeah, it was really incredible moment and, um, something that I'll, I'll never forget. Well, it's good to know that the, uh, resi- the wind resistance didn't, didn't mess up the, you know, <laughs> your the aerodynamic shot. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Definitely. Okay. So talk to me a little bit about shot put. Uh, this is interesting to me. So, um, how heavy is a shot put? So on the international level, uh, shot put is 16 pounds or, um, 7.26 kilograms. It is extremely heavy. Yeah. When you're in high school, you throw a 12 pound shot put. And when you're throwing a 12 pound shot put in high school, you kind of get by on just being a, a strong athlete and your technique can kind of be mediocre, but you can still throw it far. But when you go to the 16 pounder in college and internationally, you have to have that strength and the technique together. You know, you, <laughs> a lot of uh, weightlifting, a lot of um, exercises in order to, to put that thing out there far. So are most of the shot putter, at least the guys, do they look like you? I mean, are they, they big guys or 300 pounds, you know, plus 200, they're tall. They're just built. They're just muscle. It's, you know, the height is not always uh, the same. You might have some short guys that are kind of stockier, but usually the shot putters are, are more on the hefty side and uh, the discus throwers tend to be a little bit more tall and leaner. Um, and then javelin athletes are more, uh, it was funny. I, I had a buddy in college who he was about five, six, 150 pounds and he would just absolutely kill me in the javelin. Uh, but just the body type was, was totally different, but yeah, in shot put, you have to have really full body strength. You got to have really strong lower body, um, upper body. It is a full body throw. And you have a very short space to, to throw it in and you have to, to maximize that and explode out. So yeah, usually the shot putters or the, uh, the, the beefier athletes out there and that's, you know, what really makes, but you need it, you know, it's, it's all for, uh, for what you need. So yeah, like the guy who won the, uh, Olympic gold medal in the shot put Ryan Krauser at the Tokyo games and in Rio in 2016, He's about six, eight, 300 pounds. Now he, you know, a guy like that doesn't, he's not a, uh, a fat 300 pounds. He's a solid 300 pounds. Mm-hmm. So see a little bit, you know, mixture, but everyone, everyone's definitely got some strength behind it when they're, when they're chucking that thing. Yeah. So a 16 pound, uh, is it, it's metal, um, iron, 
Steel. Yeah, it's yeah, it's usually a kind of a cast iron is what most shot puts are made out of. They do have some uh, metallic ones, but the ones that you commonly see are, you know, pretty much imagine if your cast iron skillet was uh, in the form of a yeah. of a ball and uh, weighed 16 pounds. You put that thing against your neck and uh, spin around you know, and, and throw it, right? Yep, exactly. So uh, how far do you throw it? I mean, you're a world champion. So what was your length for those, those victories? Yeah. So my, my best throw all time was, uh, was 46 feet and the shot put. And then, uh, and the discus was, uh, I think it was 145. So had some pretty close battles there at the world championships, usually at the, at the high level, you know, you're talking, inches are the difference between medals and, and, uh, you know, being off the podium. So it's just like football, it's a game of inches and you got to really maximize your, your strength. And, um, every ring is different too. The size is the same, but the slickness and everything, and just the, the conditions are important as well. Probably more so in the discus, uh, with the, with the wind, Sometimes you have to catch the wind correctly. Um, that plays a little bit of a role in shot put, but not as much because the distance is, is much uh, less. And well, uh, even a stiff wind's not going to move a 16 pound shot put that much. So, yeah. Are there any distinct advantages or disadvantages uh, with a visual impairment and, and specifically in shot put, other than just maybe the obvious of just not being able to see? see well <laughs> yeah uh not being able to see the bad throws you do um i think the the biggest thing is um a lot of younger throwers especially they always focus in practice how far they're throwing and a lot of times your coaches will be working with you on a very specific technical part of the throw and they want you to focus on that and when you're focusing on that and you're trying to get that part down, your throw length might be a little bit less just because you're working on a specific component and the, the distance is not very important. You're trying to get that part down. That's, that's the key thing. And so as soon as I let it go, I could never, I could never see how far it went. And I think that was, <laughs> of course, you know, I wanted to know how far it was, but um not being able to see where it went, you're able to focus more on the, the technical side. And after a while, you get to a point where as soon as you release it, you know immediately, oh, that was a good one. That was a bad one. I did this wrong. Um, I did this well. You know, you're able to analyze it better. And, and that's a lot of what, um, that's a really important aspect to have as an athlete, whether you're blind or not, is being able to uh, to know your body well enough to to feel what's happening and know what that muscle memory should feel like when you release the shot put or the discus. It's like when I did judo. Judo is a is a martial arts sport, grappling sport, kind of similar to wrestling. And by the time the moves the moves in judo happen so fast, by the time you actually see them happening, it's already done. It's already too late. It it happens in a split second. And so a lot of times you have to, you have to feel your opponent's body movement and what they're doing, where their balance is and use their momentum against them. And so that really lends itself to blind and visually impaired athletes, because it, it's all about your sense of, of feel and touch and um, being, you know, intuitive with your opponent's movements. So there, there's some advantages there. Um, it was, 
you know, when you throw a shot put or a discus after about four or five athletes throw, you go out and fetch the, uh, you go out and fetch the implements. A lot of times my teammates would grab them for me just cause you know, I would spend hours in the, in the grass field trying to find my dang discus. Mm-hmm. So, uh, that, that saved me some time and some headaches, uh, you know, small and, and kind of a safety factor too, because you don't want to be out in the middle of a, um, a discus landing zone if you're, if yeah, you're blind sure. with, uh, you know, just flying around. So that's not going to be fun for anybody. All right. And let's talk a little bit about the USABA. That is, um, that is your, you work with the USABA, right? Yeah, I'm the uh, programs and finance director for USABA or US Association of Blind Athletes, but we, we just call ourselves USABA. And uh, I've been a, an athlete with USABA since 2007 and uh, joined on as a staff member in, in 2015. And it's been a really, really great career move for me. And something that I'm extremely passionate about is to help other um, people that are blind and visually impaired get involved in, in sports and recreation. Uh, we help kind of, we help people achieve their goal, their athletic goals, no matter what it is. If it's somebody who is recently blind or somebody who is blind and just wants to get off the couch and get active and then all the way up to athletes that want to compete at the Paralympic level and everything in between. And so we, uh, we offer programs in 10 different sports we uh, do a lot of grant programs as well to address a sedentary lifestyle in the blindness community. And um, uh, a big part of what I do is uh, I oversee the national team uh, programs for the sport of goalball. And uh, are you familiar with, with goalball? Much yeah, time? I am gotcha. familiar, not, not deeply familiar, but I, yeah, I know, I know what's going on there. Well, we'll have, to, we'll have to get you on the court one of these days. We'll uh, we'll make it happen. But, I dare uh, you. I dare you because um, <laughs> I, uh, I I think it would be fun. I've, I've seen it played, and it, it sounds interesting. So uh, I may come up there and see you in uh, Colorado Springs. But we just had the Tokyo Olympics. And so this is kind of a big time, I, I would guess, for the USABA. We're, we're on the heels of the, the Paralympics. And we've got National Blind Sports Week coming up here in the next week or two. So... There's probably a lot of things going on. How did we do at the Paralympics? Yeah, we uh, had a really great showing at the Paralympics. Um, our women's goalball team took a silver medal, and our men's goalball team, uh, they played for bronze. Unfortunately, they lost, took fourth place. But still, we were one of only uh, two countries in the world to have uh, both our teams in the top four. And so our, our programs are in a really good place. Our our teams, they were kind of the cardiac kids. They had some really dramatic uh, games, some overtime wins. And, um, you know, watching them here in Colorado, the, the games were on local times, you know, like at midnight or like 4 a.m. And uh, wasn't getting a lot of sleep. I think I was waking people up in the house, hooting and hollering. But, um, yeah, the teams played extremely well. Uh, very proud of, of how they how they performed and our coaching staffs did a, a great job too. It was a completely different training cycle um, leading up to, to this games, just with, with the COVID protocols and, and all the things going on um, and even going to the games as well, just all the things that our, our uh, delegation had to, to deal with, but they handled it incredibly. They stayed focused. 
and and everyone's everyone's back to the U.S. and taking a little bit of a break because and they're well deserved. Our athletes, you know, when you are training for something like the Paralympic Games or the Olympic Games, you sacrifice so much of your your life. Of you know, you're putting life plans off. You're putting career plans off. Um, and then there's just the, the energy and the dedication that you have to have to train at that level. And so last year when the, they postponed the Tokyo Olympics and Paralympics for another year, all of our athletes, you know, they stepped up to the plate and said, you know, we're, we're finishing this thing and they stuck to it and, uh, it paid off big time in Tokyo but they're taking a little, a little break right now. Uh, very well deserved. Um, so yeah, that was a, a big part of what we've been doing the last month or so is the Tokyo Paralympic games. And, um, and then, yeah, we have our national blind sports week, which is going to be taking place the week of October 25th. And that is a, a week long uh, celebration of, of blind sports. And we're going to be having different guests will have coaches, athletes, uh, guide runners all throughout that week to talk about uh, various aspects of blind sports information, uh, resources, and, you know, some words of words of encouragement and inspiration from some of the athletes uh, that we work with and, and know well. So we have a lot of stuff going on at uh, USABA. Um, and, you know, one of the, one of the thing I think, um, you were mentioning earlier, you played soccer, right? I do. I did. Yeah. Nice. Well, we are starting a blind soccer program. Actually, I should say we are restarting it because, um, you know, the sport of blind soccer, um, I'm sure you have some listeners out there right now going blind soccer. Like how, how the heck does that work? Well, it's played five versus five. You play on a field that's about 150 feet long by 75 feet wide. And the ball itself has ball bearings inside of it. And so it produces kind of a rattling noise when you kick it. Just like in goalball, all the players are wearing blacked out eye shades. So regardless of vision loss, you're, uh, you know, you can't see a thing. And so you, when you're on offense, you are dribbling the ball and you're creating a sound source with the ball because it has those ball bearings inside of it. On defense, when you approach the ball, you have to say the word voy, which is Spanish for I go or I'm coming. Uh, the game was created in South America. That's the where, where that phrase comes from. So you're, uh, you're on offense. You're dribbling the ball down the field. The defender approaches you. They say voy, voy. As you near the goal, as you're dribbling the ball down the field and you're close to take a shot, you have a sighted guy that's behind the goal. And they're going to give you a sound source to shoot at. So you're dribbling the ball, you're getting close. And then you listen for your guide who says, you know, shoot, shoot. You kick the ball towards the sound of their voice. And hopefully you, uh, you put one in the back of the net. So you have um, five players on each side of the, uh, the field. Um, that includes the goalies who are sighted, but they have to stay in a very small confined uh, goalie box. And, um, they score about four goals a game on the international circuit, which is more than sided soccer. So there's a lot of action going on. And the, one of the reasons that we started up blind soccer programming in, in 2018 is because, uh, in 2017, 
they announced that Los Angeles is going to be the host of the 2028 Olympics and Paralympic Games, which is really exciting because as the host country, the U.S. will have an automatic bid for every single sport that's played there, which is a huge advantage. And so in, uh, in 2018, we realized, you know what, we're going to have a team in 10 years in Los Angeles. We need to start some, some programming up. So in 2018, 2019, we started up some programming. We have about 12 teams, um, uh, local teams across the country. Um, it's growing very fast and we're looking for more people to get involved. It is the only blind sport that has blind athletes running on their own, not connected to a guide, but they are running on their own. Um, you know, obviously you have varying sound sources that are on the field and on the outside of the field with the coaches, but there's no tether. There's no, there's no nothing. It's them and the other players who are in the same boat. So it is really a, a unique game and something that we're really excited to continue to grow. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Uh, I'm interested. That that could be uh, pretty exciting. So in, you're saying in 2028, there'll be a blind uh, soccer competition at the Paralympics. Sorry. Yep. Yeah, so blind soccer right now is the only um, only soccer only soccer game in the Paralympics. So it's uh, it's been in the Paralympics since 2004. Uh, it's growing very fast uh, internationally. There's about 60 teams that play and, you know, we have a lot of work to do, but we're going to, that's part of what we're doing is developing these local teams. We want to find players. We want to make sure that, you know, if you're a blind teenager right now and you have aspirations to go to the Paralympic games, you're considering blind soccer as one of those options along with, you know, goalball and track and swimming and what have you, but it's, it's a really exciting sport. Um, and we're, we just hired a full-time staff member, um, Jaime Garzon, who's going to be leading our blind soccer initiatives to kind of continue this growth and, uh, really want to expand as much as possible. Um, you know, we, we know that soccer is extremely popular in, uh, in the U S and I'm sure there's a lot of blind kids out there who have brothers and sisters that are playing soccer and AYSO on the weekends and, you know, we want to let them know this is an option too and yeah. have everybody get involved and just kind of expand those opportunities. Awesome. Yeah. So I'm also a US ABA member. I uh, joined about a year ago. I'm not much of an athlete. I'm more like the guy that wants to get off the couch. I, I was pretty active as a, uh, as a teen, teenager, soccer and stuff, but I do bike now. And that's kind of one of the reasons why I joined was to get connected with some other bikers um i'm in the uh, dallas area so just kind of connect with some people and, and i don't know maybe there's some maybe there's some soccer opportunities in the dallas area too that could be interesting yeah we're gonna get you on the goal ball court on the soccer field <laughs> maybe even the velodrome for cycling oh we'll, man we'll, we'll do everything uh, with you <laughs> yeah well this is being recorded you realize that right <laughs> maybe i should realize that <laughs> that's cool i i'm interested i'm i'm in let's go let's do it <laughs> Okay, and something else I know that uh, is near and dear to your heart, uh, Kevin, is when you, you like to focus and, and bring more attention to employment for people with disabilities, really all the range of disabilities. And it's kind of a, kind of a tough, tough world out there for, for those with uh, disabilities. So what kind of advice do you give for employers or employees that are looking to, um, to do something better? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the biggest piece of advice I would lend to you know, the employers is that 
a lot of times they will view having somebody with a disability um, as a, as a burden. Uh, and, and instead of viewing it from that standpoint, viewing it as an asset, because we know that uh, the disability community is the largest minority group in the country. About one in five Americans uh, live with a disability. And we also know that that disabled voice is not present and strong enough um, at those decision-making tables when it comes to, you know, universal design or, or creating products that anybody and everybody can use. Um, I think it's, you know, just from a pure business sense, if you look at that demographic of, you know, how can we better appeal to 20% of Americans? I would think that would be something that's enticing and really a market that has not been honed in on or focused on as much. I'm sure, you know, it has been, but not as, as broadly as it should be um, by, by corporate America. And, you know, I think just on a, on a psychological, psychological level, and this is just, this is just my two cents, but there is a, a general discomfort with that the general public has with people with disabilities it's, you know, like I talked about earlier, that story of the woman talking to my wife, if I need to ask, if I need help, you know, she didn't want to talk to me because I had a cane. And so it, it I think that's a, um, you know, it's a, it's a small story that, that shows a big problem is that discomfort. And oftentimes you hear a lot about people with disabilities disclosing their disability on a resume, on a cover letter, some part of the application process, and they never get a call back. And then um, maybe next time they decide to not disclose their disability on the application process. And what do you know, their phone's ringing off the hook. And there are a lot of people with disabilities out there that have the experience and, and the knowledge to get the job done. But when a hiring manager is looking at a stack of resumes and they've never interacted with a blind person or a person in a wheelchair or whatever the disability might be, and they have you know plenty of other qualified candidates, they, they're going to go with what they're more, most comfortable with. And I think that is um, something that we all play a role in. Um, you know, I've talked to a lot of young athletes and, and people with disabilities and whether you like it or not, you're kind of, if you're a person with a disability, you're kind of a walking billboard and it may be the, um, you may be the only person with a disability that person sees the entire year. And so it goes a long way to showing what our capabilities are, you know, with, with the behavior. And it kind of sounds like a lot of pressure, but I, I always like to kind of tell it like it is. Uh, <laughs> and some people, you know, it kind of rubs people the wrong way sometimes, but I'm just a guy giving my two cents um, and trying to figure out the best way that we can, we can figure out this problem because in the blindness community, the unemployment rate has been hovering around 70% for decades. And it's, it's really unacceptable. And I know there there's a lot of reasons it happens, whether it's uh, lack of accessible technology to, to get the job done, 
And oftentimes that's, that, that's a barrier right there is the employer goes, oh, I don't want to buy all this equipment. But you know, another thing I would say to employers is that if it, there are plenty of qualified people with disabilities out there and, you know, when, when you're a person with a disability, you understand how rare it is to get that chance to, uh, to, to get a full-time job offer. It may be the only one you get for several years. And I know personally, when I, um, you know, I took this job with USABA, I, you know, this was my chance to thrive, to take the bull by the horns, to, to rise to the occasion and hold on to this job for dear life. Because I knew in my heart that uh, an opportunity might like this might not come up, you know, in the near future because of my disability. It's a sad it's a sad reality, but it's, um, I think there's a lot of truth to that too. And, and if you give, if you give that person a chance, um, you'll be very satisfied with, with the work that, uh, they produce. Yeah. You're good at putting in your two cents. Uh, you do, you do that a lot. I've, I've heard you speak a lot, uh, which is great. And you also did a, an incredible Ted talk, uh, which is fantastic. And, uh, was that, was that a fun experience doing that? It was, it was a really, uh, <laughs> it's a long experience. You don't just show up on stage and do your 15 minutes and get out of there. It's uh, it was like a six month long process, but, uh, I learned a lot, you know, changed my speech probably 20 times <laughs> over the course of that six months, but, um, really, really enjoyed the end product and the people I was able to work with. Yeah. If you guys Google, uh, Kevin Broussard enabled the disabled, uh, that's, that's my Ted talk. If you want to check that out, kind of cover some of the topics we, uh, we touched on tonight. Yeah, you nailed it. Uh, it's fantastic. So, uh, Kevin Broussard enable the disabled. Is that what it's called? Correct. And, yep. um, if somebody wants to know more about Kevin Broussard and what you do, where's the best place for people to find you? Yeah. Um, on Instagram, my, uh, my name is Kevin underscore throws and nice. then, I like that. um, yeah, you know, I used to throw shot puts and I used to throw people in judo. So I figured that was a good one. And then my, uh, I, I do speaking engagements, uh, talking about, um, you know, goal setting, achieving your goals, overcoming adversity, uh, bullying or anti-bullying, uh, a little bit of everything. And, uh, my, my speaking website is talksbykevin.com. I have some, some videos on there, contact information as well. And then um, if you're interested in, in learning more about uh, USABA, uh, usaba.org is uh, the best place to go for that. Tremendous. Kevin, thanks a bunch for joining. I guess I'll probably see you in person sometime here on the uh, gold ball court or the uh, soccer field or wherever it is. So that'll, that'll be interesting. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks a bunch. Yeah, thanks, John. Thanks for spending time with the Ambiguously Blind podcast. Please rate and write a review wherever you subscribe, and connect and share with us at ambiguouslyblind.com.